battle going on for the heart and soul of America, and the right side must win. It's time for Ladies Can We Talk with Debbie Georgiatis. On Ladies Can We Talk, we talk truth about America and why it matters to you. Ladies Can We Talk starts now. Well, good evening and welcome to Ladies Can We Talk. Thank you so very much for tuning in. This is Debbie Georgiatis, and this is my opening Ladies Can We Talk Speak Up for America segment. And I want to jump right in and talk about this uh, phenomenon that has been going on ever since it became apparent that Donald Trump would win the, or is likely to win the presidential nomination on the Republican side, and that is this Never Trump um, hashtag, Never Trump discussion. And what I want to do in this opening segment, these are your talking points. These are things I hope you hold on to, listen to, write down, because what I want to talk about is why the answer is Never Hillary. That is the hashtag that matters. Never Hillary. I'm going to tell you why. And these are really important things, whether you are generally speaking a more moderate Republican, a very conservative Republican, wherever you lie on the GOP side. And frankly, even if you're a Democrat, these matter to you. These never Hillary talking points. I'm going to start with a story that was in the news this week. Everyone in America who even plays remotely remotely pays attention to the news is aware that there's an ongoing investigation by the FBI of Hillary Clinton and her email use during the time she served as secretary of state. And particularly um, the, it was the setting up of a server outside of the system required by federal government employees, including Hillary. When she served as secretary of state, she was supposed to use the email system, the email server that is controlled by and protected by the federal government. So Hillary had a private email server set up in her home. She didn't use the system, and the entire time she served as Secretary of State, never used the system she was supposed to use. She received thousands of emails back and forth in this unprotected server that has been hacked by our enemies. And these emails contain secret, top secret, all sorts of emails that could truly not just weren't meant for the eyes of our enemies, but could actually jeopardize our national security. So in March of this year, this ongoing investigation by the FBI, the FBI gave immunity to her employee, Brian Pagliano, and he he was the one who, working for her, set up the server and uh, worked for her the whole time she was Secretary of State, still worked for the um, uh, State Department after she had left. And so this past Monday, we learned, so now it's almost a week ago, we learned that the, um, in a filing with, uh, in federal court by the Republican National Committee, the st- they reported in that filing that the State Department has said, in response to the demand for emails, a request for documents, essentially, the RNC has been looking for and the FBI is looking into where are the communications between Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State and Brian Pagliano, this employee of hers who has immunity, who is uh, has, I don't know precisely the kind of immunity, but he essentially is cooperating the investigation of Hillary. And the answer given to the RNC and to the public is there are no emails responsive to this request. What they're saying is, All of the emails between Brian Pagliano and Hillary Clinton do not exist. 
There's nothing to turn over except one. There was one when he sent her an email saying, happy birthday, Madam Secretary. Other than that, no emails. And what this means and why this is so profoundly important for you to understand what it means is either this guy, Pagliano, had another private email that nobody else used except, you know, and he and he and Hillary communicated that way, or the more likely scenario is he is hiding or has destroyed these emails. Now, I got to tell you, folks, any of you have ever had a computer expert come to your house and you say, I can't find this. I've had this at our house. I can't find this. I think it was lost. I think it was destroyed. My computer guy said many times, no, not, it's never gone. We can retrieve them. What, what Brian Pegliano is telling the American public is, I'm not going to give you those emails. So on the reason number one why the never Hillary hashtag needs to be embedded in American society is that this is a woman who's engaged in serial dishonesty in her entire political career. This is another flat out stare you right in the face and lie to you uh, decision by Hillary Clinton that whatever. And the reason those emails would be important in case this hasn't, I, I should make that point, is because. Everyone knows she did what she's accused of, that she used a private server. She didn't use a system she was supposed to use. But the question is why? And the answer would be in those emails. She'd be talking about why I want you to do She's very likely to have talked about why I want you to do this, what I want you to do. And what this essentially saying is they're not going, we're not ever going to know. So there's a dishonesty factor. She's been called a congenital liar many, many times. We have, I think, I'm not sure we have been able to get it up, but we have another great example of Hillary, the congenital liar, having to do with sniper fire landing. And here we go. Here's the audio. Remember landing under sniper fire. Okay, this is Hillary Clinton saying that when she visited Bosnia, that she landed at the airport there and the American military was so negligent that they landed a plane in the middle of sniper fire. She later had to acknowledge... There was supposed to be some kind of a greeting ceremony at the airport, but instead we just ran with our heads down to get into the vehicles uh, to get to our base. And what she later then said was, I, I remember landing under sniper. Yeah, no, wait, that's what I said when I was sleep deprived. You can read my book. And I said <laughs> something very different. Yeah, I misspoke. Okay, I yeah, misspoke. Totally, yeah. I'm going to tell you something. Misspoke is like when I say, you know, um, I had a dentist appointment last Tuesday. No, wait, that was Wednesday. That's misspeaking. This is a flat-out lie. And if this does, if, why this matters so much to you, if you have a president who simply cannot tell you the truth, you need to be able to trust the president on big issues and small. And Hillary Clinton, rule number or issue number one for never Hillary, congenital liar, will never know what the truth is if she ever touches the White House. This is Debbie George Asson. Ladies, can we talk? Come back after our break. Welcome back to Ladies Can We Talk. You know, we have leading ladies on the show, and they join me normally in the second hour. But tonight I'm going to have them join me in this first hour. We have so much to talk about, and it's just so hard in two short hours. So I have Jenny McGarry and Carrie Kellerman here. I'm going to go right to the story that's really dominated the news cycle in the last few days. And that has to do with President Obama uh, issuing, and he didn't issue an order yet, but he issued a statement essentially saying that all public schools, including colleges and universities, must comply with this new federal policy. It's not federal law that Congress passed, but new federal policy essentially saying transgender people must be permitted to use the bathroom of the gender that they identify with that day, regardless of their anatomy. And so this has created a firestorm because obviously most parents don't want their girls or their daughters in showering or changing areas with 
boys, whether it's at in fourth grade, 12th grade, or in college, for a lot of common sense reasons. I want to start with this clip from Dan Patrick, our Texas Lieutenant Governor, fabulous guy. There's a clip from him being interviewed by Megan Kelly at Fox. I want to quick have you hear what that he had to say. I believe it is the biggest issue facing families and schools in America since prayer was taken out of public schools. He says he's going to withhold funding if schools do not follow the policy. Well, in Texas, he can keep his 30 pieces of silver. We will not yield to blackmail from the president of the United States. This has nothing to do, this policy, to enhance education in our country. It won't improve reading skills or math scores. It won't help kids graduate. This will do nothing but be more disruptive, Megan, to our schools. Look, I was talking to a teacher just a little bit ago, and they say, you know, we have a tough enough time with boys in the locker room and girls in the bathroom. When you start bringing in 14-year-old boys with 14-year-old girls to shower together, 7-year-old children co-mixing in the bathroom, um, it's going to be chaos in our schools. You know, this is very interesting. Dan Patrick, Texas Lieutenant Governor, taking a strong stand. And then he was interviewed by Megan Kelly. And she essentially, the tone in her voice is what I want to capture before we all launch off and talk about this. The tone in her voice of what she, when she was asking Dan Patrick to explain what's so bad about boys showering with girls in high school locker rooms. Why is it like, try to articulate because why it goes against it goes against common sense, common decency, privacy, comfort, safety, the value system of people. And by the way, Megan, this is not a partisan issue. You know, I'm going to quick turn. We have Jenny McGarry and Carrie Kellman here tonight. What I was frustrated with in Megan Kelly was she acted like she couldn't figure out why anyone objects to this policy. And even when, I mean, I, I will tell you this, whatever you identify with in your mind, your anatomy is either male or female. And this is what people are concerned about, sexual predators, people who just would love to get to see a bunch of other people of the opposite sex without their clothes on. This is what people are concerned about. So I, I just, I'm going to start with either, I don't know who wants to go first, but why do you think Obama is doing this right now? My only guess is that, I mean, it is a strange thing to bring up when you have around 200 days left in office, 260 days, I guess, left in office. Let's why bring down. up something that's going to get the ire of the parents uh, we're talking about their kids and schools. This is so disruptive, so explosive. To me, it sounds like he's trying to distract. It's a wedge issue. Well, it's not even a wedge issue. It's just explosive. People are just mad. There's no polling on it. There's uh, no logic to it. There's no there logic to it. So it's to me, it sounds like some kind of political, um, hey, look over here while I'll do something over here. Yeah, I, he's good at that, the squirrel thing. And, yeah. and, and, and he's trying to make this into a mockery where our values are something to be laughed at and to be thrown out the window. And the problem is, is that what I see is that this is not a transgender issue. God bless those kids that are going through that kind of confusion. But this is a safety issue. This is an issue where you have kids that are going to take advantage of the policy to reach a different goal to to videotape to take pictures that are inappropriate mm -hmm. it's not about the kid that is confused and going through a hard time this is about the people that will act as a predator and i don't want my eight-year-old or my 15-year-old daughter in a room with a guy that is going to take advantage of that situation and i'm not ready for my eight-year-old to take a shower in the same room with a guy Mm -hmm. It just yeah. a man, a male with male genitals. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not ready to explain that all to them yet. Mm -hmm.
Yeah, you know, this is just, uh, you both are kind of, I think, capturing or recognizing this feeling I'm trying to describe. You just keep waiting to hear like a punchline or, yeah. or a better explanation because, you know, because to those advocating for this transgender restroom policy, they are not okay with, the ACLU is not okay with an answer from a school in North Dakota that said, okay, we'll have a restroom for females only, a restroom for males only, and showers and locker rooms, and we'll have one that's mm-hmm. neutral, gender neutral, that anyone can use if they are confused or if they are whatever reason they have. Mm-hmm. And that was not okay with the ACLU because you're, they said, the ACLU said, you're still treating the anatomical boy, a male who identifies as a girl, but he's still a male anatomically, you're treating him as if he's not really a girl. Well, which the answer is he's not. That's it's why. putting the feelings of one person above a group. Yeah, and it is, as Dan Patrick pointed out, and I guess we didn't play that segment, but he pointed out it's like three-tenths of 1% of Americans maybe at top are are in the transgender group, and so you're going to say because they are upset not to use the restroom of the identity they choose that all the rest of us have to have these safety concerns. I thought Dan Patrick captured it well. I thought I did really well on that. I just, it is, it shows you, it exposes an agenda uh, if you can provide a private restroom that just says private for people who have problems knowing what they are, uh, it, but that's not enough, and they want to shame the rest of us into making them feel comfortable. I don't know what it... I, I don't even know what to say. <laughs> yeah, you do get kind of speechless about it. I will say this. You know, I think that the whole marriage decision came down, and I did a big riff on this when the marriage decision came down this from the Supreme Court that... You know, this is not the resolution of an issue. This is going to launch a hundred more issues. And to me, it's a very, at the core of leftist thinking, there is always a determination to undermine Mm -hmm. basic traditional American values, to Mm -hmm. mock them, to belittle them. We don't need nuclear family units. You can have any kind of family unit. We don't have to have traditional marriage. We'll have something else. And this is, again, to me, it's cutting away at the idea that there's some higher being that is a source of our identity, Mm. that we actually have an identity that's God-given. And so this is, you know, you may, and I I will say, I know that there are children and adults and people of all ages struggling with gender identity. I don't, it's a minute portion, but there are some, but the answer isn't to agree that gender disorder is, I mean, it's a disorder. It's not your identity. In fact, the American Academy of Pediatrics came out recently saying this, there is no such thing as, you know, there's all this gender thing. It's a, it's a, it's a mental disorder. It's yes. not a, it, it's, it, it's a disorder, not an identity. And I think to defend against this, you're telling people the disorder that you're going to humor it in the same way you order. If I said mm-hmm. my identity, I think I'm a Whatever I thought, I'm not. And you have to treat them with what, yeah. who, who and what they are. There's no amount what, of surgery yeah. that's going to change your chromosomes. And what, what, what bothers me even more, I mean, of course, you know, the fact that we have to look at a higher being actually determining our gender. But uh, on the ground level is that they're taking away our ability to parent our own children. They are, they are saying that the school is, is going to step in and parent. They say that this public facility is going to step in and parent. I want to parent my own child, mm-hmm. and I want to be able to explain things to them. I want to be able to know if they're struggling with any kind of issue, if they're struggling with a gender disorder, if they're struggling with anything, mm-hmm. and that that is not the job of the school. That is my job as a parent, and the federal government is not allowed to cut me out of that. And you know what else, Jenny? I'm so glad you're saying that because we this show is based in Dallas and in Fort Worth right down the road. 
the school district there just uh, embraced or adopted this gender thing, uh, gender disorder policy. But what they said was what Jenny's referring to is they said, you know, a student can tell a teacher, anyone else, administration, and they're not going to tell the parents, you know, your child's struggling with their gender. That that this law protects the the school to deal with the child and really through law, keeps the parents out of it unless a child chooses to share it, which is just, it is, again, tearing apart that family structure. And I, you know, I used to hear things like this and think, well, that the left couldn't be this sinister. It couldn't be this bad. But it really is. There's no explanation for all of what's going on except to say this this not wanting parents to shape their children's values, to mm-hmm. teach them the story, that their, their faith, their values, what they believe in. The school and the administration is getting in the middle of that saying, no, we're going to decide all this for you. I think this may have been a major overstepping of the bounds by President Obama. And I would tell you something else, folks, to keep in mind about this. There's no federal law that says gender identity is a protected class. Like There's a federal law, Title VII and others, that say you can't discriminate based on race, sex, national religion, uh, national origin or religion. None of that says gender identity. Congress would never pass a law that would give rise to a regulation like this. This is, again, the Obama administration deciding that they're going to just make law of their own. And I think it's going to backfire. I, don't, I can't see who this is popular with. I, I just see the word agitate. This is just agitating in an area that's just, it's just not, it's not even kind of necessary. It, the, the part of the population, what did Dan say? Three-tenths of one percent? Yeah, yeah. You know, this is, and I'll tell you one more thing, Jenny made reference to it and Carrie too, but, you know, this whole thing about uh, responding to it is a lot of people are saying, oh, come on, it's a fringe issue, but it would change. Imagine if your daughter went to school and had to shower around boys, that would change the way you feel about public school. Debbie Georgia, as ladies, can we talk? Come on back after our break. Welcome back to Ladies Can We Talk. I'm so happy you're here. Joined us. This is Debbie Georgiatis. I'm here tonight with Carrie Kellerman and Jenny McGarry. And we have online uh, our guest tonight. This, I think, is the first time we've had a guest from the American Enterprise Institute, Mr. Gerard Robinson. Hello, sir. Oops, do we have him? Okay. We yeah. Have- this is Gerard Robinson. Glad to be on board. Oh, thank you so much. Hello, sir. Well, I. Uh, Surprisingly, I got talking too long in the last segment, and I did not have a chance to properly introduce you. So I'm going to quick tell our listeners that uh, this is the American Enterprise Institute, and Gerard Robinson is joining us tonight to talk about, I thought this was the coolest thing. I literally stumbled across it on the Internet, this project that was taken on by the American Enterprise Institute to focus on uh, essentially reentry of people who are leaving the prison system and coming back into American life and helping them in various ways through policy. So I guess to start with, would you tell our listeners a little bit about what American Enterprise Institute is all about? Sure. Uh, so AEI is a private uh, nonprofit institution dedicated to research and education on various issues. Education is one of them. We primarily focus research on economics, foreign defense policy, politics and public opinion, health, energy, the environment, and, of course, society and culture. Uh, We believe that freedom, that ideas matter, and we believe that in order to have a a prosperous, safe, and more democratic nation, that we need a safe place for people to talk across the line. And we've had conversations with conservatives and liberals, and with an issue like criminal justice reform, 
Borowski believes that it's important for all people to come to the table and to have a dialogue. Because at the end of the day, the question isn't right or left, but the question is, what are we going to do that's right to help children who've been left behind by parents who are incarcerated? and to make sure that we leave policies behind that don't work and embrace particularly free market principles that do. Love that. I love that. Great intro. You know, you used an expression you did that I use all the time, which is ideas matter. It's just amazing how people can think there should be solutions, but they have to step back and think, what is the... Where will this policy take us? Where will this? How do you solve it if you don't talk about ideas and come up with different policies? And I've always described American Enterprise Institute as a think tank. Do, do you use that term about yourselves? Yes, we are a think tank uh, as well as a do tank. Oh, I like that. Do tank. Okay. Well, the specific thing, and uh, again, we have not met, and so I and I don't think you've probably uh, been tuned into our show before, but you know, another point I try to make all the time is that America is full of good people and good organizations that work very hard to do good for their fellow man, to try to find solutions to help each other. And this struck me so much that you're, you were trying to focus on how, what do you do with children whose parents are incarcerated Who's looking after their education? And so just tell me more about how you came up with this idea and what some of your, your uh, thoughts were about that. So if we take a look at the broad picture, um, we have approximately 7.7 million Americans who have done part-time at one point in their life in our either federal or state prison system. We currently have 2.2 million people who are incarcerated. And we know that in 2014, there were at least 640,000 people who were released. Now, those are the large numbers, and when we think of prison, we think of adults. But many adults are also parents, and that's something that we often forget uh, in our conversation. And so if you look at the fact that between 1980 and 2000, the number of children with a father in prison rose 500%, and at least 45% of the men in state or federal prison are age 24 or younger, and their fathers approximately 48% of women in state prisons who are 24 younger are mothers. And as someone who began my career as a fifth-grade school teacher, then pulled into public policy, I began to say, hmm. So we talk at a national level about children left behind that primarily focused on academics. What about the children who are left behind because of incarceration? And so a few people within AEI uh, decided to work together and see what we can do from a free market standpoint to provide a a description of the problem and a host of solutions. And this is something that we think is important. Now, I've got to tell you, there are several people who said, why is AEI focused on this issue? I have two responses. First, AEI should be focused because this is a human uh, dignity issue and one where we believe that human assets matter. And number two, uh, we've heard a lot of people, other think tanks, I should say, weigh in. Uh, This is an issue we should weigh in on as well. And as a result, people from the left, the right, the middle uh, are, you know, paying attention to what we're doing. And I think that's a step in the right direction. I just love that. And, you know, I I, um, honestly had not thought about it. I feel kind of selfish now now that I am focused on it. I've never thought about that. You have parents incarcerated who literally have no interaction or very limited interaction with their children. They're not able to figure out what their academic needs are, figure out whether they should transfer a different school, try to move. So so the community really has to step in, a community of families, I guess. But what are the, do you have some policy ideas to address this? 
So right now, the federal government, through uh, its, one of its federal bureaus dealing with incarcerated families, they have a program in place to actually support school systems with children. So that's something we know is in place. A few weeks ago, uh, the White House had an event, event uh, as part of its National Reentry Week, and our Attorney General uh, Lynch, she also supported a program to make sure that there are at least four cities where there would be a pilot project to deal with families who have children that are incarcerated. So at the federal level, there are plans in place. There are also plans at the state and local level. But for me, I think uh, we've got to do something as relates to what I call civil society. And a civil society approach for me is a broad, open arms approach. I think it's unrealistic to expect our public schools to do everything for every child. Uh, it's simply unable, it's simply impossible to do practically, but I'm not also sure morally that it's the right thing to do. We have to rely on faith-based organizations, for-profit and non-profit institutions, as well as professional volunteers to say, school principal, what can we do to support you, particularly for children who have been left behind? And so our solutions are to make sure we involve uh, other stakeholders in place, um, you know, to do the right thing. And we surely know faith-based communities have done it for a number of years. Oh, they have, and I've commented so many times. A lot of the faith-based organizations and other just good charities, their work is largely unsung. People, unless you happen to be involved in a particular one, even in your own community, you don't know what these groups do. You don't know all the good they're doing. And I think in this particular case, this idea of helping families who or some family members incarcerated and also helping that them when that person is released and has to start dealing with life again, this is a really smaller niche thing. I mean, there there are a lot of charities that are involved with uh, diseases and hunger and poverty, but, you know, there's a little bit of a stigma dealing with families when there has been incarceration, and you kind of wonder what was going on in that family, but I love, love this idea. And again, I want to go back to the goodness and greatness of America and Americans. People like you, people like AEI, are doing something just out of, out of love of our country, love of our society, love of your fellow man. I, I just think it's fabulous. You know, when we were uh, discussing the idea internally, you know, a few things came to mind. You know, every day in America, five million children wake up without hearing good morning from a parent. And why? And that's because mom or dad uh, is among the 2.0 million uh, who are incarcerated in state or federal prisons. Now, if you add the 11.4 million who cycle through local jails each year, it's clear that too many American children are living lives interrupted. And so what we can do as caregiving adults who are physically not in the children's home is to use public policy, common sense, philanthropy, and just a dose of, uh, of a good heart to figure out what can we do to help. And so as a think tank, part of our job is to disseminate ideas. And as a result of that, you, are not, you, know, you and I are now on the call having a conversation otherwise we likely would not have had. Absolutely. We're speaking tonight with Gerard Robinson, who is with the American Enterprise Institute, which is a think tank and a do tank. I love that. I'm going to try to remember that. That's a great, great expression because you can think, but you got to get moving, too. You know, and we don't we only have uh, guests. We have under a minute left this. But I also I noticed you have this reentry project uh, referring also to how you help people being released. And I was making mentioning to my friends here off air in between that. I was aware where our daughter, our adult daughter lives in San Francisco. They had a restaurant near her home that the founder created the restaurant and exclusively for the purpose of 
employing ex-felons, employing people to help them get back in the working world. Isn't that something that we need more opportunities like that? Yes, because once you're released from prison and you're giving uh, maybe fifty dollars uh, and a few other items, it's a you know good luck perspective. But we know nearly two thirds will come back within a five year period, so that recidivism rate is simply too high. Frankly, a lot of ex felons cannot receive a job because they have a felon, and there's a box they have to check. So opening up opportunities for uh, the formerly incarcerated or what I refer to as uh, returning citizens. To have a good quality job makes a lot of sense. Yeah. You mentioned. Yep. <laughs> you know what? That that guy back in the booth turns the music on. We're speaking with Gerard Robinson very quickly. The website is AEI.org. Is that right? Sure is. Okay, Gerard, thank you so much for calling in tonight. Thank you, and I uh, hope your listeners continue to do the great work they're doing. Thank you. It's Debbie George asked, Ladies, Can We Talk? And this next segment, we are going to turn and talk about what's happening in Venezuela. You'd be glad you don't live there. Welcome back to Ladies Can We Talk. I'd like to thank our guests from the last segment again, Gerard Robinson of the American Enterprise Institute. You know, I put a lot of posts in the Ladies Can We Talk Facebook page. If you're on Facebook, check out our Facebook page. And I put things up in the ladieskinwetalk.org website, constantly trying to make the point that one of the major arguments against big government in Washington is the fact that America is made up of good people who look out for each other, who care for each other. People, America is the most generous nation on earth, statistically proven year after year after year. It is made up of people who care about each other. And it is really an argument against needing to have a massive exploding increasingly controlling federal government that supposedly takes care of all of our problems, we do look out for each other. And we need to recognize as the government grows, we lose liberty and we don't need the programs. We don't need to have Washington take care of every single person from cradle to grave. We actually are a beautiful society made of good, caring people, which this is a good example of American Enterprise Institute. They could be spending a bunch of money talking about the virtue of free markets, which they do, but they, they have donations from people. But they spend time thinking about How do we help the incarcerated? How do we help the children? How do we help the families? They work to promote ideas. I I just, I love that, and I think it just speaks of the goodness of America. Okay, so on this segment, usually I do my cruise through the news, but we couldn't resist telling you what's going on in light of Bernie Sanders' popularity as a socialist, what's happening in Venezuela, and Jenny is going to tell you that. Jenny McGarry. This is big government gone wild, okay? In 1998, Hugo Chavez gets elected president, and let's talk about what he does between... 1998 and uh, actually what's happening today. Uh, During that time period between 98 and 2013 when he finally dies of cancer, uh, he uh, manages to redistribute land that are owned privately by different uh, citizens of his own country. And he also takes over different industries and nationalizes American companies that are there in Venezuela. Uh, Exxon, Mobil, and uh, all of the uh, gas and oil companies that are there. Uh, ConocoPhillips, because they refuse to hand over majority control to Venezuela. Today, we have Maduro, who has taken over the presidency in 2013. He's a former bus driver. Uh, We have shortages of basic goods. Um, We have price controls, worthless currency, inflation, and a poor exchange rate. In 2016 of this year, in February 2016, Maduro wanted to expand his power. And in doing so, he 
was answered by a referendum of Congress in that their Congress that was elected ended up being a more conservative Congress, looking out more for what is happening in the economy. And Maduro didn't like this. So he took this to the Venezuelan Supreme Court, who ruled in Maduro's favor and allowed him to expand his power. This is at a time where Venezuela has the highest inflation in the world. And what happens? He increases taxes, which causes even more problems. He, he even redistributes more commonplace resources. And who suffers? It's the people. And this is what happens when the national government decides what is going to be allowed for each individual that is a citizen of their own country. Yeah, this is a fabulous, fabulous, and just, it's kind of like we're in this amazing presidential cycle where we're listening to Bernie Sanders have astounding popularity in the American left. Basically, and he is, at least he admits he's a socialist. He's a Democrat socialist. And yet the world is watching Venezuela, where I've reported numerous times in this show, they've had a toilet paper shortage for four years. They can't deal with basic shortages. They have food shortages. The people are standing in line. They have protests where they have the government tanks lined up who are trying to stop the people who are simply protesting whatever your crazy policies are, stop because we're hungry. And the bottom line of it all is socialism causes misery. Okay, this is kind of like with your hashtag, never Hillary, never socialism, Mm -hmm. which and Hillary is is she's pretty much a socialist, although she's just too smart to say it. But all that socialism ever is, is a growing power in a massive centralized government trying to control the economy, the freedom, the prices, the cost of everything. And somehow thinking that through the brilliance of the individuals in government, they can make it all work. And it never has worked. Socialism produces misery wherever it's practiced. Venezuela is just a shining example in front of us. Mm-hmm. There's never been a long-term case of socialist uh, success anywhere. Long-term. Oh, and- yeah, it falls apart. Or like in China, which they, they, you know, they're trying socialism or they have communism because you only have one political party. And by the way, to, to define some terms here, socialism is the idea of government that essentially says the government owns everything and sets prices and wages, owns the means of production. And the only difference, and so it's, The only difference between socialism and communism is that in communism, all political opposition is outlawed. So it's one party, the Communist Party, they control everything. But the system the Communist Party is using to torture its people is socialism. Mm -hmm. And let me say one thing. The people actually realized that, that they were in trouble with Maduro. And they tried to elect a Congress to balance that power out. But the problem was the Supreme Court. So we are looking at a very similar situation today. We have got to be very careful about what is going to happen in the next four years Mm -hmm. because we have a Supreme Court to be worried about. We have the legislator and then we have the presidency. Mm -hmm. This is going to be a pivotal time for America. It shows what a great thing we talk on the show about the founding of America, the building blocks of America, what just profound brilliance our founders had Mm -hmm. to try to say we're going to have, we're writing it in the Constitution, we have a separation of powers, the laws must be passed by the people that you, the individuals, you, we, the people choose, you elect to Congress and the Senate, you have the power. Once And and then the courts are only there to determine whether or not laws are consistent with the Constitution. They're they're not there to... you know, they're solve conflicts of laws, but they're not there to make laws. And the executive branch is there to enforce. It was a brilliant division of the vehicles or m- means of power government has over the people. But in America, if we don't hold on to that, 
we can be like Venezuela, where you have the Supreme Court saying, I know, which it has kind of done in some cases already. It's let President Obama get away with executive orders, which did not were not consistent with what Congress had ruled. But the courts kind of like Obama. They don't want to rule against him. They let him get away with a lot in this Absolutely. And, and, and that is going to be an issue that we're going to have to look at with who's coming up next, who's going to take the place of Justice Scalia. This is going to be a pivotal decision that the new executor of the United States of America is going to have to make. Yeah, that is so true. My never Hillary list. Absolutely. Um, I, I had, I had, it's funny, the first, the opening segment uh, is my, you know, speak up for America segment. And I always do some riff. And today I was on why never Hillary. And so I had like seven points to make. And I only got through the first one, which is that she's a congenital liar and her liars, her lies will hurt us. They will hurt mm-hmm. America. But that was one of the points I was going to get to. We'll probably have to do this weekly. Why never Hillary keep pounding to it. But that was one was. She or whoever is the next president of the United States will choose the replacement for Justice Scalia and perhaps two, three, or maybe even four other justices, depending if they're how long the, the justices want to serve, because they're they're all kind of senior. And this is unspe- in, indescribable power over America. What the Supreme Court does, mm-hmm. it's a rain check. R e i g n a rain check <laughs> well, I like on that. I like on anybody who's trying to act imperial, which has described Obama's reign. So yes, yes. yeah, you know, and in Venezuela, I love Jenny. You point out that people are trying to say, "Hey, wait, the socialism isn't working too well. Can we get back? Try to elect a conservative Congress?" But they, to no avail, if they can't, if the Congress can't rein in the president. And, you know, it's also interesting, in Venezuela, they have a more organized opposition to President Maduro than they've ever had. An organized opposition leading marches, making demands. But if you don't have a rule of law, a system like we have here, there's nowhere to go. I mean, they, they can't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. And it makes me think sometimes that we're just one vote away from that. When I say an election, I don't even mean that. I mean one vote on the Supreme Court away mm-hmm. from this that could expand the power of the president in a way that we don't need. Oh, I know. In fact, you know, I as my uh, background in law, I, um, I sometimes get maybe a little too far into the weeds and legal stuff, but I've thought about this a lot about the Constitution and how it, it was just, it was written in, in a way to try to protect in perpetuity, forever, for eternally, the idea that we, the people, have the power. We select government. It, it was trying to very hard to prevent the creation of a ruling class, prevent tyranny. But if every generation isn't vigilant in insisting it be followed, and we have not been vigilant enough, or not enough of us have been vigilant in America to watch the growing power of the executive branch, the growing power of the federal government. I mean, that's you know, some of the big issues behind this election cycle. They're not just, you know, plan A and plan B on some issues, but how much do we, are we going to agree how much power the federal government should have, and we don't protest it, or we don't protest it effectively? Well, my own personal protest was homeschooling my own kids that was my form of saying i'm an, i'm in charge i'm a one-woman pta and um <laughs> i am all complaints <laughs> in there and and that was my own way of protesting and taking matters into my own hands i'm sure other americans have had their own but uh, other than standing with signs on the street corner that's you know that was the way i said to the federal government not with my kids yeah and back to the issue we were talking about uh, earlier with this 
it isn't yet in order. And I meant, to, I meant that comment. President Obama has not issued an executive order yet saying that all schools must comply with this HHS. Mm-hmm. You can shower wherever you want, regardless of your anatomy. You can you can choose your shower every day based on your anatomy, which is really what he's saying. Mm-hmm. Is the outcome what he's saying? He hasn't done an order yet, and there is litigation. Uh, the state of North Carolina sued the Department of Justice. Asking, uh, asking essentially for the court to rule that the HHS, the Health and Human Services federal agency, had no power to make this transgender rule. And and really, if the court looks at the law, that their answer is they didn't have that right. But right. we'll see how that comes out. Yeah. When people are, there is no polling. But when people get to vote with their feet, we can look at what's happened to Target in the last thirty days. They have lost $4 billion. That's B as in boy, billion. Yep. Okay, we're coming up on a break. I was going to tell you that the, uh, the second hour time, we have a really special guest. He'll come on at 7.15. His name is Dr. Michael Cox, and he is a friend of the show. He is an SMU uh, economics professor. He served as a chairman of the Fed. He's a brilliant economist. We're going to talk about protectionist policies like tariffs and what they do to the economy. So it's going to be a great uh, kind of summary what's happening in america and we're also going to talk about our rapid fire question is what's the roadmap to unify the gop come back after our top of the hour break for our second hour roundtable on Ladies Can We Talk with Debbie Georgiatis. More talking truth about America. Hey, welcome back to Ladies Can We Talk. And this is our second hour roundtable. And I always like to say a quick point that the first hour is usually just me. Second hour, I have these leading ladies. I just want you to know a little bit about them. They are conservative leaders. I call them leading ladies because they really are conservative leaders. And we have a total of six, two wrote, rotate in each week. They are speakers, writers, thinkers, activists. And we just try to talk about the issues of the day, all from the perspective of just loving and embracing the unique ideas that made America, America. We all embrace, we love the idea of the power of informed women to shape the American political conversation. We are pro-women, we're pro-America, and we also all love our husbands and our kids. So we're tuned in, just in case you're tuned out, and we talk truth about America. Okay, so in this rapid-fire segment, top of the uh, second hour, it's a very short segment, seven minutes, so I just have one question. And this week my question is, and everyone's been talking about it, but I want to hear these brilliant ladies' answers, what is the roadmap to unify the GOP? Who's going first? I am. Uh, 
it was a tough race. It was ugly. It wasn't pretty. But I don't know a single real political campaign that is. So I just want to say that there are three points. One, I think that with Trump not running a traditional campaign, he was not able to get in touch with a lot of the conservative backbone of America, the conservative leaders. And I think that he needs to become more accessible so that he can possibly, you know, help help with changing where the wounds are and really getting in touch. And I think fundraisers will give him buy-in and also give conservative leaders more access, maybe to help shape policy. And in that policy, that would be my second point. He needs to look at a lot of the conservative leaders that are out there that are the backbone of the GOP that's moving forward. And they can help with giving inputs on policies that are important to America. And the third thing is that there has to be no question about uniting behind Trump or whomever our leader ends up being of the Republican Party because we have a common enemy. We have Hillary, and we all have to get behind that. As we said, hashtag never Hillary. Yep. And I will say, this is tough. It's a the GOP primary, the Democrat primary, it's like a circular firing squad. Um, you've got people kicking dust in the in each other's eyes, and um, it's never fun to have uh, fire aimed at your the, your candidate. Um, but once there's one candidate left standing, and the fire then is aimed at the uh, the opposing side, once the fire is aimed at Hillary, um, then it's it becomes easier to get behind the candidate that's doing the firing. But the process of find, getting to that one letter, it, it's hard. It's not fun. People put time, money, effort, energy uh, into their guy. They develop a pro-con list probably in their mind. And in their, their mind's eye, all the pros are behind their candidate and all the cons are behind the other ones. But when you get one, down to one, you can develop a pro-con list on this one candidate. Um, there's a thing called confirmation bias. It means you find what you're looking for. Uh, it's happened to me in past campaigns when I didn't get my pick, my first choice, um, and you kind of were left with who other people had chosen. Uh, I did find reasons to support that those candidates. Um, I realized they were better than the alternative, and I began a pro-con list on that one person and realized there were things I could stand behind. There were things I could support. And what I didn't support then, I could try to change, either through contacting the campaign or influencing in my own way. So that's what I would say is just um, start looking for things you can get behind and things you can support uh, because you'll find them. If you look for them, you'll find them. You know, this is interesting. This election cycle, is a, we have alluded to many times, and these ladies who are on with me tonight have too, it was a really exceptionally, to my sense, uh, very divisive, very angry campaign. And it was a huge field and people had to find a way to distinguish themselves. I think where we are right now is we and I love to talk about in the show that for serious, earnest patriots, politics should not be about the person. And honestly, they shouldn't even really be about the political party because that's just a thing. I mean, it's just a, an, a malleable entity. It should be about principles and ideas. And so at the end of the day, my sense is what Hillary Clinton stands for and what the American, the Democrats stand for today is so far off the American ball field, so far outside of free markets, free enterprise, strong national defense, a secure border, everything we know we need, the left is against that. So I have to be on the side that is going to, to stand up against the left. Having said that, I, w- I will say I, this past week, probably many of our listeners 
listeners knew, there was a meeting, a kind of historic meeting between Donald Trump, um, Paul Ryan, and Ryan Priebus, who is the, the head of the GOP in Washington. And after the meeting, Paul Ryan, who was the Speaker of the House, he's a relatively new in that position, um, he had signaled before the meeting that he wasn't ready yet to endorse Donald Trump. And even after the meeting, he said he wasn't quite ready to endorse Donald Trump. And, you know, it's an interesting thing because I'm, you know, I'm a real kind of conservative across the board. I'm conservative on, on issues. And I think sometimes labels get uh, confusing or misleading, but I really, I am one of the, one of the voters who was very upset and angry with the GOP, with the establishment. Paul Ryan and Republicans like him are exactly why Donald Trump was winning the primary and why the other outsider, Ted Cruz, was a second place winner of the primaries. The conduct, the refusal to stand up, the actions or the inactions of the GOP in Washington are why Donald Trump exists. They're why Ted Cruz's campaign was so successful. So it's incumbent on the GOP to figure out what the voters are saying, try to tune back in, and perhaps reach some uh, some common ground footing. Okay, I'm going to go off to our break in a moment, but i got to tell you that we have a great, great guest coming on next hour, next segment, Dr. Michael Cox, friend of this show, friend of ours, economist, to talk about what tariffs do to our economy. Don't go away. You'll want to know this in the election cycle. You need to know this. And welcome back to Ladies Can We Talk. This is Debbie Georgetta. So glad you've tuned in tonight. Okay, we have a very special guest. I mentioned before we went to the break, a special guest in this segment, Dr. Michael Cox. He is the founding director of SMU's O'Neill Center for Global Markets and Freedom. And he's also the former chief economist of the Federal Reserve Bank in Dallas. He's a PhD in economics. And I'm just going to tell on you because I have you online and you can't, <laughs> and you're going to answer my questions. But we had lunch recently to talk about some of the things I wanted to ask him about. And honestly, uh, Dr. Cox is so um, well informed that we re- really could have done a two-hour show just on the kind of questions I want to ask him, but uh, he just has a lot to share. But I want to tune right away. Um, and first of all, uh, hello. Good evening, Dr. Cox. Hi, Debbie. How are you? Just great. Glad to have you. Okay, so here I want to, what I want to tune in on. So there has been talk in this election cycle about all the jobs in the factory manufacturing leaving America and that one way to uh, per, to encourage businesses not to leave and not to go to foreign soil to produce and actually to punish American businesses that have moved abroad is to impose high tariffs on uh, the import of goods. And so I want to ask an economist, what does that do? What's the consequence of, of high tariffs to, to uh, prevent businesses from leaving or to uh, encourage them to come back? Well, it may be the worst idea ever. Um, there are a lot of bad ideas that politicians like to throw around, but nothing ever damaged America more than the tariffs that we tried to impose on foreign nations uh, back in the 1920s. It eventually led, uh, in the 20s and the 30s, to a collapse of world trade into the Great Depression. Okay, why is that? And honestly, I, I've told you before, because you're just, I just love listening and learning from you, Dr. Cox. But in a very, you know, kind of walk us through why. How do tariffs end up hurting the economy? What happens when you impose well, first, them? Of, first of all, let's remember, tariffs raise the price of things to consumers in America. So right off, they hurt consumers. And what you're doing, let's, let's, let's come up with a plan where we hurt American consumers in order to supposedly help American producers. But they don't even help American producers in the long run, even if they do in the short run. 
Because what happens is this. When you decide you're going to put a tariff on the, on uh, our nation's import of foreign goods, there, what, there are three ways that damages the American economy. The first and most obvious way is that when we decide to tariff their goods, foreigners' goods, foreigners will in turn decide to tariff our goods and put a tax on importing American products into their countries. You can't slap them in the face and say, now I dare you to slap me back. That's exactly <laughs> what happened in the 19. 19- 30s is that when Hoover uh, passed the smooth holly when he uh, both when he finally signed into law the smooth holly tariff, a uh, thousand and twenty eight economists petitioned Hoover not to do it, but he did it anyway. And as a result of it, uh, they put tariffs on our products, all of our products, to the point where global trade went down by ninety percent during the uh, Great Depression, and that's what caused the Great Depression. They don't buy our goods. And that's the first way it hurts you. It hurts you also because if you decide to put a tariff on their goods, then it makes it, that subsidizes our industry. Our industry doesn't get strong when it's when it's when it's subsidized. It gets weak. The way to make an industry strong is to make it productive. People think about this in the real world. Wherever you see a subsidy, you see you're creating weakness. Look at your children. Do you make life easy for your children? Do you make them stronger? Do you make them weaker? Well, you know, but in order to solve the problem of trade, you have to make American workers more productive. American uh, agricultural workers, for example, are 30 times as productive as Chinese agricultural workers. So that's why we can have high wages in agriculture, and we don't have coolie wages in agriculture because we are 30 times as productive as them. So the secret is to get rid of labor unions, get rid of American tariffs, uh, get rid of uh, the, the high taxes on American corporations, get the jobs back here in America. They're not having a 40% income tax rate. Uh, and so our labor unions become also inefficient. Under, I mean, become very powerful under tariffs, and you just have, you know, it just sucks the lifeblood out of the country. And then the third way it hurts America is that when you tariff uh, uh, imports, oftentimes you are tariffing products that we use in production. If you put a tariff on steel, you raise the price of steel in America, you make American cars more expensive, and you make our cars uncompetitive on world markets. If you tariff sugar, which we do a lot, you make American candy uh, and it's too expensive in the, in the global airports and the, and the foreign candy sales and so on for lumber from Canada. You hurt American producers who use foreign products and intermediate products in the production process. So it's the worst idea ever. It is a. It is something. It's designed to to protect American industry, but it inevitably leads to the worsening of American industry and the American economy. You know, we talked about before, Dr. Cox. We're speaking with Dr. Michael Cox, which I'm, whom I'm so grateful to have on our show tonight. He is at Southern Methodist University, SMU. He's the founding director of their O'Neill Center for Global Markets and Freedom, and also the former chief economist of the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas. So. I love this, and we've talked about this idea before that in other arenas, you know, like uh, if someone's a brain surgeon, uh, I would listen to his advice about, or if I had to, what brain surgery is all about, or any other expert. If an architect, I would I would want an architect's input on you know how to build a building. And economists are the same thing. It's a actual study of and a creation of, of using factual data, watching patterns. So it's what you're talking about in tariffs. I, I think it's important. It's not like a, like there's a back and forth and there's, there's a, it, it is what you're talking about is based on data and past history. I think it's just Absolutely. so important to emphasize. Yes. 
And then why did Americans talk Mark Boom in the 1980s and the 1990s? Specifically because, and why did the American economy boom? Specifically because we opened up free trade. We had NAFTA. We had several rounds of general agreements for tariffs and trade. We, we opened up not just the, the, the trade in the goods market, but also the trade in the capital markets, where people could borrow abroad, lend abroad, and, and, and invest abroad, not just America, but Japan. And so we, had the, we learned the lesson in a positive way during the 1890s is that with freer trade and more trade comes a better economy. With less trade and a closing down of borders and, and tariffs and so on, we learned that. We learned it the, 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 the rough way, the terrible way during the Great Depression and the good way recently. These are not, you know, these, these, we, uh, we do not want to take these ideas coming out of certain politicians' mouths seriously, no matter who the politicians are. Uh, it's just devastating to an economy. Okay, so let me ask you this. So if you were advising Congress or the president about the uh, fact that we do have many companies taking manufacturing abroad, going to Mexico or some other place in the world and moving manufacturing there, are there economic policies the federal government could embrace that would encourage bringing those businesses back if if we're going to cross off tariffs as one of the choices? Over the past 25 years, virtually every other nation in the world has cut their corporate income tax rate. Germany started off with a 60% corporate income tax rate, and it's cut theirs to 25%. Japan cut theirs. Every European nation cut theirs. Most of the world cut their corporate income tax rate. The United States did not. We still have a 40% corporate income tax rate, and only one nation in the world has one higher than us, Chad. So we're in the company of Chad when it comes to our, <laughs> our policies. So what has this done for America? It has shipped our jobs overseas. Because who wants to invest in American companies when you, when you pull out the profits in the form of dividends or, or earnings or so on? And before you can get it, your hands on $1, the government takes 40 cents of it away. So foreigners don't invest here anymore. American companies have shifted jobs overseas. They produce their goods overseas instead of in America. They don't have the tax because they produce it in the foreign subsidiary. Multinationals have started to produce a lot more. Over, not they started to, but they, they're now producing a lot more abroad than in America. Our corporate income tax rate is the thing we could get rid of or cut it to 10, 15 percent. And I've even done calculations. I can prove to you that if the government were to cut the corporate income tax rate, even the government would benefit by having more, by having more overall tax revenue. Uh, it's the same way that happened under the Reagan administration when they cut the tax rate. Overall revenues eventually went up because it made the economy stronger. So that's an easy proof, but yet we still don't do it. Uh, and that's the number one way we could grow America and get, get business back at home. I love that because it's so simple. And as you lay it out, it's so logical. And I, you hear politicians, actually, I think everyone on the GOP side was saying we have to reduce corporate income tax rates. We have to reduce our, our and, and somehow that we're not able to accomplish that in, in Washington. But again, if it's so factual, it's so frustrating that we can't just do that. Another thing I want to ask you, though, I think that there's an argument that some businesses leave America because of our regulatory environment, that we have too much regulation, and especially in the environmental arena, is just actually you know we have one minute till our this uh, segment is over dr cox can you hang on through the break yeah i'll be happy to thank you so much we're talking with dr michael cox I love having him on talking about what do we do to actually bring businesses back to america which was a discussion in the and is an ongoing discussion this election cycle what do we do when we see that jobs are leaving america and we want to do something that is wise and doesn't hurt america and so we're talking about how you do that so we're going to go off to our break and then the um 
we come back, I want to share, talk about that. Also tell you about the really coolest thing SMU is doing to try to help young high school students actually emerge from high school, understanding why free markets are great, because then they would never vote for Bernie Sanders. Come back after the break. Welcome back to Ladies Can We Talk. So glad you tuned in. Tonight we're speaking with, we're going back to speak some more with Dr. Michael Cox of SMU. He's a PhD in economics and just a really good explainer of economics things. So I want to, before we, I do want you to tell me, tell our listeners about the program at SMU, the Texas Economic Freedom Project. But before we do that, I want to ask you one more thing, Dr. Cox, about all this stuff about um, companies sending business, they're choosing to manufacture elsewhere. Isn't there something kind of right about the idea that America has evolved from an agrarian economy uh, where you have majority of people working in agriculture to a manufacturing economy to essentially a service economy, that there may be a right distribution of the kinds of, of things needed that maybe it's smarter to have manufacturing of, low, of, of products, uh, manufacturing facilities. It's more logical to have them in different countries, and that's kind of okay, right? It's, it's a free market it's a freedom concept, isn't that right? Right. The way to wealth is not through man. It, it goes through manufacturing, but it doesn't end with manufacturing. It ends with people having high levels of education, where you become doctors, lawyers, dentists, accountants, engineers, computer pro- pro- programmers, biological and life scientists, and everything I just mentioned and more are service sector jobs. Jobs where we produce a lot of value. America has a large service sector surplus. We have a deficit in our manufacturing arena and in our goods, and that's largely because we're not as competitive in good markets, goods markets as we should be, and that's largely because American workers are not as productive as they need to be. We, the kind of policies we need are policies which make labor unions smaller. When you make the labor unions smaller, you make, you know, as bad as it sounds, hey, it's a good thing to have to compete to be good at your job. And, you know, when you get better and better at it, you become more productive and you can become competitive on world markets and we can export goods once again. So most wealthy nations are wealthy through finally getting to the service sector. They still retain some manufacturing sector, and I would love to see American manufacturing be larger, uh, but only through our workers becoming more productive, not to them being, you know, us taxing foreign plants and suffering, making uh, American consumers suffer by not being able to buy their products. I just love all that you just said, including, I think I found that very helpful that when people hear the uh, moving to a corner service sector economy, I think people can have a very narrow view of that and think, well, there couldn't be enough jobs in that. And I know you're saying we can have some manufacturing here too, but it, it's very, it's a broad thing and it's actually a, a kind of uplifting thing. The jobs are much more widespread than just a you know, you mentioned in with respect to healthcare, manufacturer. I mean, the service industry is a lot of things, and they do bring good jobs, even for people who aren't yeah. highly skilled. Is that the problem? Goes back to our public schools, quite frankly. And let's just face it, they're government schools, and they standardize everything. When I was growing up, there were a lot of people who really didn't really want to get a job in the service sector. They wanted to be a, you know, work with their hands. And I used to be able to take shop and get good at things like that. We don't, in our in our educational system today, 
we don't give much uh, credence or credit or respect to the fact that those are good jobs. And, it, you know, it, you could teach people in American schools how to be productive in a factory. That would be part of what they could learn to do. You could teach them the Six Sigma stuff, how to be, you know, high quality. How to, um, and, and I think that that's something that's a legitimate thing for people to do for a living if they want to do it. Uh, but let's not kid ourselves. The way the the income distribution in America that we have today, which is very wide, is an is is a first approximation. It's the education distribution, and the people who make really good living are the ones, to, by and large, who are well educated in our colleges and beyond. And our high school students today, there's 70 percent of Americans still still don't go on to high from high school to college. How does a high school worker today get into the middle class? When your terminal degree is a high school degree and they're not teaching you, you know, uh, how to be productive in a factory or any kind of anymore, how do we get into the middle class? America's first middle class was born of the industrial age, of industrial age workers. So uh, I know it's, it's uh, I could go on and on about this, but I'm glad. <laughs> Yeah, we're talking with Dr. Michael Cox, and I'm so glad you did go on and on about that. We talked about that uh, when we met to talk about this show. We talked about how, you know, there's just it kind of too much focus by some in the political arena about, you know, the income distribution is too wide, the income inequality is too wide, and it's really educational inequality that gets you out of that, that, uh, that is what should be focused on and can be addressed by, by public policy, by people caring more and, and working toward having a higher percentage of people getting a degree that's helpful out of high school or beyond, helpful to actually getting them a job. Right. I love that you raised that. We also want to quick uh, change gears here because the, these uh, segments go by so quickly it's really frustrating. But you, uh, we were talking about how it's kind of astonishing that Bernie Sanders – and actually Hillary, too, to a lesser degree, can be as successful as they are in running for president when he, Bernie Sanders, is openly calling himself a socialist. Uh, in an earlier segment tonight, we talked about what's happening in Venezuela, which is heartbreaking and preventable and the result of socialist ideas. So I love when you're telling me about something that SMU has undertaken. I think you call it the Texas Economic Freedom Project and what you're doing to correct this in, in America. So can you tell our listeners about that? Right. Now, Texas is obviously one the most successful state in America. It's the state we're receiving the most migrants from other states. The Americas are moving in mass today. We're in the largest period of migration from state to state ever, and they're coming here. And they're coming here for the successful Texas economy. So we want to keep it that way. They're coming here because uh, if you come to Texas, you can make a better life for yourself and your family. We are the new New world. It's a low tax state. We have no income tax. Labor unions with the right to work state and labor unions are a very small force around the state compared to other states. Uh, we have a relatively small government. You know, you can't come here for welfare. If you're coming here from abroad to come take welfare, might as well move on. We don't give them much welfare around <laughs> this state. And so Texas is a very free market state and people are simply coming here for that. The right to start, you know, to, to for self determination, self actualization just make a better life for themselves and their family. They believe in themselves, and they know if they come to Texas, and by and large, they're right, they can do well, so they're coming here in droves. Well, we want to keep it that way, and the way to keep it that way is to make sure that, the, that our new citizens from California or from Mexico, wherever they come from, and our, and our, our indigenous residents all understand free markets because for Texas's success is coming from us being the most free market state in America, and we have measures of that in our center. So, and we invite you to look at those and contact us. And so 
so we started a project to help uh, as a part of our Texas Economic Freedom Project. We started uh, another project to educate um, Texas high school students. We uh, started this year with a pilot program to go into the school districts and HISD, DISD, um, the you know down in San Antonio, all across the border and Texas, and um, teach the teach the teachers free market economics. Now, the state of Texas, the legislature has mandated that our high school teachers have to teach free market economics. And we said, that's just great. We've got, we, we are the free marketplace. So we'll teach you how to, you know, at a, at a very basic level, how to teach free market economics to the students in the way they'll know and understand and love and appreciate. I just love that. If every student left high school understanding why the beauty of free enterprise and free markets and how that's how America became prosperous, they wouldn't be able to get duped by someone like Bernie Sanders selling socialism. But it's because they don't know, and socialism sounds to them like it's kind of like about sharing. It's about being nice. It's about, And it just could not be more harmful, especially to the poorest of the poor. It's an amazing I thing. I spent time in the Soviet Union. I spent time in Cuba. I know how those systems really work. It's a disaster. People were so depressed when I was in the Soviet Union. Even the architecture is depressing. I told some I told some guy when I was in line there to get to buy some food one day. And you're in line all the time looking for stuff. I said, I think if I lived here, I was telling one of my compadres from uh, Sanford University, the Hoover Institution, if I lived there, I'd just take a gun and shoot myself. And the guy behind me, who was from Leningrad at the time, it's back to being St. Petersburg now, the guy behind me said, where would you get a bullet? Oh. <laughs> and uh, yep. I mean, you, there's no people have no rights. The end result of socialism is it's, it's exactly what um, Winston Churchill said that that the um, the inherent vice of capitalism is the unequal sharing of blessings. Semicolon. But the inherent virtue of so, of socialism is the equal sharing of miseries. Yes, we'll be all poor. We'll, we'll all be equal, but we'll all be equally poor. No opportunity. Tremendously self-defeating defeats the human spirit. I saw so many people, men in particular, just walking around with their heads down. You know, no point of being an entrepreneur. Come up with an idea. Got to go run it through the Politburo. Everything is committee decision. Everything is the individual rights are squashed. For the collective good, and, and it's, it's it's a it's a nightmarish socialism in practice. In uh, theory, might be heaven, but in practice, it's hell. I love that you said that. We're speaking with Dr. Michael Cox, and sometime I'll have to tell you, Dr. Cox, I went to Soviet Union also, it was and went to Moscow, Kevin Landgrad was still socialist, still communist. Wow, misery uh, personified. Thank you so very much for calling in. Today. It was just great talking with you. Thank you, Debbie. That's Dr. Michael Cox at SMU. In our last segment, we're going to talk about why you can no longer get a ride on Uber in Austin and how come so many Americans are leaving this precious country. A lot left to tell in our last segment. Come right back. And welcome back to Ladies Can We Talk. I, I can't stand how this two hours goes by so quickly, and I've complained numerous times. Okay, I'm not going to complain every time at the end of the show, but it always seems like we have so much more to talk about. Before we get in our last segment with my good friends Jenny and Carrie, who are here, my leading ladies tonight, I do want to thank our sponsor. This show would not be possible without the generosity of our sponsor, GC Works. And GC Works is a Dallas-based company. They perform 
research in advanced technology, and they deliver innovative approaches, innovative approaches to the oil and gas industry. It's a great company, great people, generous people. I deeply appreciate their supporting the show, and I try to make it excellent just because I always would try to make it excellent, but I try to do it, make it excellent for them so they, they uh, appreciate their investment. So, okay, in our final segment, I want to hit two things, and you guys may have a different reaction than I do. In fact, Jenny, I think you do have a different reaction. One is this news that came out this week that Facebook, shockingly, a, a person left Facebook, in fact, two people left Facebook, and said essentially that Facebook manipulates the news. They hide good store, good stories that make conservatism or conservatives look good and they uh, and they just repress them they keep them out of the trending cycle and um shocking shocking i know <laughs> well, I'm a, you know it's funny because we were speaking in the last segment about the soviet union and and i did go uh, there in high school when it was still communist um and walking through moscow there is like at every corner a like a telephone pole with a loudspeaker on it and constant talking in Russian just all the time, wherever you are. So I said to our tour guide, what is that? What are they doing? She said, it is communist propaganda. It's all about the evils of capitalism, the evils of the Western world, the beauties of communism. They, they listen to propaganda 24 hours a day if you're out in the street in Moscow. So I was thinking about how Facebook is, it is like manipulated, controlled social media because people go there I mean, especially not political people, they go there to see what their friends did last night and who had fun, who's dating and who broke up, whatever they go to look at. But the news feed is maybe a primary source of news and the, it's a very manipulative thing. But does it matter? It matters. It bugs the daylight side of me. But do you think it matters? Or? It, it bugs me. But, you know, Google does the same thing. And the mm-hmm. way that, I don't like that, that either. That, that I, I, I sift through the news. It, I, I go to the people that I, I know what their values are, whether they're with me or in the middle of the road, because I like to look at all those sides. And, and I look at the stories that they're reading, and I look at different things like that. And when I, even when I go to Google, I look at where it's coming from, what's the publication. And, and goodness knows, the, those are two sources, but there's so many others out there. But with Facebook... We all use Facebook on a daily basis. I don't. You know, well, yeah. Well, she, she's Twitter. Twitter. She's, Twitter she's a Twitter lady. I'm a Twitter. Twitter and, we, and Twitter's having some of the same complaints. They have what they yes. call sh- shadow banning, where certain tweets just don't show up. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of that. A lot of that going on. And basically, what I see is, is I just see this elitism. Uh, Americans can't handle the truth. We'll decide what you need to know. That kind of uh, attitude bugs me. Terribly. Oh, it, it, it's so insidious. And really, I, I'm glad you were talking about why they do it. I think it is. There is that elitism. I also just think there's a sense uh, among the elites that they are so sure they're right Mm -hmm. that they're actually kind of performing a public service they're kind of keeping the ignorant masses from possibly thinking something is important that they think is stupid or possibly causing a focus on a story that may cause them not to like hillary or to like donald trump or Mm -hmm. ted cruz it is just i I think it's insidious and evil now i I, i'm also a big though i don't want government regulating much of anything i really don't want them to stay out of it so i don't want facebook to be regulated mm-hmm. on that basis but i would love pressure from the facebook users to say knock it off i love if they're getting this attention because the the three of us in fact the six leading ladies including these two here tonight and i are kind of political wonks we read a lot we step on every story i never call them and say hey have you heard the story about blah and they say no that never happens because they've heard it but the question is what about all the people who aren't politically tuned in mm-hmm. and they think they're getting news from facebook what the gang is left-wing bias well not just left-wing bias there's an agenda too i remember we're, it, 2013 when we were having the gang of eight 
conversation. I was in the cars listening to talk radio, and I hear this these ads advocating for the Gang of Eight bill uh, by a group called Americans for a Conservative Direction. And I thought, I've never heard of that group. Went and Googled it, and it was Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook. And he was advocating for amnesty. Why? Because he wants H-1B visas. He wants cheap. He yes. wants to fire Facebook workers that are making too much money and hire cheap foreign replacements yeah, so right. that he gets more money. I agree. There's an agenda. But the, but the thing is, the platforms are changing so fast. And I mean, Facebook, honestly, is outdated. I mean, I, I hardly, I, I, I'm sorry. It is. You're on timeout. Sorry. You're on timeout. I am. I am. Facebook is outdated. Come on. Let's move on to Snapchat. Yeah. Okay. She said a bad thing. No, we don't. I want to know what everybody did last night. I look at their Snapchat stories. I just, you know. Snapchat. Isn't that the one that disappears? That's not the one that disappears. In yeah, it does. It is. It is. Well, then what sort of look at it? You, can always, you can always uh, screenshot, screenshot it. Okay. But- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you. Okay, we would no, have our laughing. our friend Neil and the producer in the um, at the boards laughing. So old. Okay, I heard that. I'm really insulted. I'll tell you. Here, here's what I really think. I think that everyone in America, if you're a patriot and you love this country, you love the principles, you want to preserve it for your grandchildren's grandchildren's grandchildren. You have to find a way to get accurate news. You have to find a way. You can look at your sources you like, like mm-hmm. Facebook. Now, I would say I don't look at Facebook and think, oh, my friend Susie posted this. Must be true. I look at the link or if I see some story doesn't sound right, I Google it. I will read. I agree on reading both sides. I'll mm-hmm. read left-wing websites like HuffPo. I'll read right-wing. I'll read all sorts of them to get the truth, to distill the truth. So you shouldn't view it as news. I just think it's an insidious behavior by the people on Facebook. And actually, for a certain vintage, Facebook is more about showing the pictures of your new baby or your mm-hmm. you know, your that's cousin's right. wedding or something. Well, hopefully, right. you're not really taking what your friends are posting on their news feed as gospel, gospel truth, truth either. No. That's why I say you've got to go research. Yeah. You've got to figure it out. But I still say this is, it, it just reminded me of the Soviet Union. There was only one right answer, and that was communism is good, America's bad, and they just blast it. And Facebook, I, I just think, it, I, I like that being called out. They're trying to, they say they're listening, they're cha- the first they denied it. They like the Democrats. First they denied it. They go, okay, okay, maybe it was true, but we didn't really mean to do anything bad. Now they're talking about, okay, so that was it. Okay, and, and I think, though, on Facebook, so actually, let me back up. So what, I know you like Twitter. You're a Twitter person. You're Snapchat. What else do you like in social media? Instagram helps, um, but a lot of times you just get, there, there's so many different platforms that are out there. I that, love blogs. Yeah, they're and, and blogging, I, blogs, too. I love blogs, and I, if they don't have a comment section, you won't get a visit from me. Yeah. I like to oh, read really? something, and I like to hear, what, I like to read what other people think about it and have an opportunity to jump in and make a comment myself oh so you do come i, I read things i will read the first few comments just to get a flavor i, I do um I, I do like blogs too and i start you start to recognize person's thinking mm-hmm. and you start to realize i like how that guy or that woman think mm-hmm. i want to go back because let's see what, what the, what's their take going to be in this issue mm-hmm. i love conservative review right now i will go to conservative review i like that one a lot um although i think they're starting to charge i think you have to pay to get past the top stories or something. Yeah. yeah. I, you get some stuff, but not everything. I like them a lot. Um, anyway, you know, it's an interesting time because my parents, all they ever did was get the newspaper and then turn on, we, they turn on the evening news while my mother was cooking dinner and that was news. But if you, if that's, if you're watching television, anybody out there, if you're watching television, you think you have the news, you don't. You don't. I mean, they have, they're kind of like, we're, this show is a microcosm of the problem TV has. Mm-hmm. You could, you have to, crush important stories with big ideas 
into little sound bites, into time, you know, yeah. limited time things. Mm-hmm. Things that are happening right now, I'm, I'm totally a fan of hashtags and t- Twitter. I mean, completely. I, if you want to see what's happening in a shooting or something happening mm-hmm. that is happening in the market or something like that, Twitter is your way to go. But when you're looking at Facebook, for me, it's a lot of times just trying to keep in touch with family. Um, other things, there are just so many other different platforms out there. There's so many texting platforms that uh, everybody uses. They've actually done studies of people uh, who look at Facebook and their sense of contentment of their own lives goes down. After they view Facebook, oh, because they see everybody, because they see everybody, yeah. Facebook is beautiful, and, and you know, you know that Facebook is starting to, that it's crested its peak when you're in an antique store and you see those cute little signs, and it says, "I hope like your life is as wonderful as you pretend it is on Facebook." Okay, <laughs> I have seen that. Okay, we don't have a lot of time for an, uh, this other story, so I'm going to try to get to it briefly. I just wanted to mention this thing. You know, I try in the show to always talk about the goodness, the greatness, the uniqueness of America and why it's, it's our job in every generation to preserve it. And, and one of the things we preserve is this basic notion of limited government, of keeping government out of things they don't really need to be in. And right now, right this election cycle, this and very recently, as a matter of fact, uh, Austin, which is not really in Texas. Is, that, is it in Texas? I think it's in Texas. Anyway. Peninsula. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, the mini San Francisco is what I hear. Yeah. Okay. So Austin's kind of left wing. They actually had a provision on their um, ballot most re- in a recent election where they essentially, uh, let me c- cut to the chase. You can't get Uber anymore in Austin. Uber and Lyft were essentially voted out by the voters. Not really. What the voters went along with was the argument, the typical left-wing argument of we're trying to create a level playing field. It's not fair that taxis have all this other, they meet these requirements, and Uber and Lyft don't. And the thing is, the answer to that is let the individual decide. If you want to ride in a cab because it makes you feel safer because you know someone's taking the guy's fingerprints and you know who they are, then use a cab. If you like Uber and you understand is unregulated, let you have that. There's just there's something about the controlling mindset of the left wing that makes me nuts about this. Absolutely. And I actually think in a big college town like Austin, Uber has probably saved lives. Yeah. I agree. Oh, yeah. Because the, uh, two or three it's cashless. Uh, you can it's very last minute. If you feel like you've had too much to drink, you can get a car liquidly, you know, just like in no time at all. And you don't even have to have the cash for it. You can just swipe a debit card. And their computer programs are wonderful. I yep. mean, the access that you can have on your phone, the way you're able to see who you're, who's coming up. I love just, that. It, 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 I, I love Uber. I love Lyft. And the fact that they're not using it is going to be a financial burden on them because they could not get additional money from those companies. We well, you know what? The people have to revolt. I tell you, that's the only yeah, answer. Watch well, yeah, go we're up. back to yeah. our uh, end of the show. It's just terrible. This is Debbie George Addison. Ladies, can we talk? I got to tell you, we love talking to you each week. We really encourage you to go to the Facebook page, Ladies, can we talk? Go to our website, ladieskinwetalk.org. I'd love if you'd follow me on Twitter, at Debbie Can We Talk. And I get emails from listeners, and you're welcome to email me. And the email address is ladieskinwetalk at gmail.com. Next week, we have on Senator Jim DeMint of the Heritage Foundation and Stacey Hawk of Texas Public Policy about educational savings accounts. Great idea. Come back. Fight for America every moment. And come back next week. Thanks for listening.
Thanks for listening to Ladies Can We Talk with Debbie Georgiatis. To learn more or to contact Debbie, go to ladieskanwetalk.org. Ladies Can We Talk, truth about America. <laughs>